I'm David Oakes and welcome to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. Whether activist fighting evil or entomologist discovering weevil, I get to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. In this episode, I went to Windsor Great Park, once home to William I almost a thousand years ago, and still home to a number of oak trees that he planted at that time. Designated a site of special scientific interest, a special area of conservation, and a special protection area for the conservation of wild birds, it also plays host to the National Collection of Rowan Trees, amongst other plant and tree species. But I popped outside the M25 to talk to zoologist and broadcaster Dr George McGavin. George trained in Edinburgh and London as an entomologist, became a lecturer in zoology at Oxford University, is currently the president of the Dorset Wildlife Trust, was the chief scientific consultant for David Attenborough's life in the undergrowth, and has been seen on our screens presenting documentaries on everything from the life cycles of oak trees to autopsies on harbour porpoises. So, without further ado... This is the final interview of this season of Trees A Crowd, and this is Dr. George McGavin. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches, the ivy, her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Where should we start? At the beginning. At the very beginning. Well, okay, so the, the, I think the first thing that I personally saw you do was your documentary on oak trees. Oh, yeah. Uh, was a Nature's Greatest Survivor. I loved that documentary. Well, one of my favourites, actually. One of my favourites. The fact that we could get a giant oak tree. Well, it was about three or four hundred years old, I think, in Oxfordshire, and we could just follow it through a year and just discover everything about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was... I. I was quite surprised that the TV company agreed to do it. Sure. But it, you know, they, there was a fashion of slow TV. You know, they, they, they thought, well, this will be like slow TV. But actually, it was really, really interesting. And I got into all sorts of things like, you know, ink production from mm-hmm. oak galls. And I lay on the victory, the decks of the victory, you know, where Admiral Nelson bled to death. And my face pressed up against an oak plank, one of the original ones uh-huh. that had been probably a tree of 200 years old before it was even failed to make the ship sure and i am now in direct contact right with my cheek of all this history you know and you think well it's a long time ago but actually in the terms of our existence on this earth it's it's the blink of an eye well one of the nice things about talking to you here in windsor great park is that you've got oak trees planted by william the conqueror so almost a thousand years old which is is a while. This is one of my favourite places on earth. There are more ancient and veteran oak trees here than in one place and probably anywhere in the world. And there, there is a tree I am told, and I have been to see it, it's called King Offa's Oak uh-huh. and it is believed to be 1,200. 1,200 years old. So this and is I, Offa as in of the dyke fame. Uh, exactly, exactly. And I still get an incredible thrill. If you go a bit further from where we are now, mm-hmm. up a little hill called uh, Snow Hill, there's an oak tree growing there, which it must be five, five, six, six hundred years old, 500 probably. And this hill was where Henry VIII rode up to hear a cannon being fired that would signify that Amberlynn's head had just been chopped off. <laughs> and his... His horse would have brushed past this tree, and it's still there. It's still growing. So that's why I love oak trees particularly, because uh-huh. they're, they're iconic. They're absolutely, you know, of, of any tree in the UK. But come on, let's go a little bit further back. They've only been here for 8,000 years. I mm-hmm. mean, a bit longer than that. It was a nice sheet here, so we're, you know, everybody's an incomer, you sure. know. But you're not a... You're, so that, I guess the, the thing that I... Coming at you from a tree direction, I didn't realise that you weren't a dendrologist by trade. So you're you're an entomologist. No, no, I'm not, <laughs> no, I'm not a dendrologist. But, I'm, I'm an entomologist. And yeah. I saw you the other day on a, on a on an ocean autopsy, but you're yeah. not a marine biologist. I know. So I know. so what are you? Well, I'm a biologist, okay. right, which encompasses biology, everything, life. I'm a zoologist because I'm I don't know a huge amount about plants, and specifically, I'm an entomologist. A bloody plane flying over. <laughs> One of the great things about the COVID lockdown Fewer has been 
the lack of planes. Uh, we're now we're not far from Heathrow, mm -hmm. and on the rare occasions I've recorded anything in the park, you've got about 30 to 60 seconds between hearing a plane coming and the last plane going and the next one arriving. Sure. So it's impossible. I mean, and you, action. And do it now, do it now. Oh, say God. Oh. No, I have to wait. Why did Linnaeus make all of these names so long? <laughs> and it is, and it's been rather nice. I have to say that there have been, I, I know it's been a terrible thing and it will probably happen again, but I was hoping there would be good things out of it. People mm. have definitely reconnected with the natural world because there's nothing else. It, you know, take away all the things you normally fill your time with, shopping, you know, music, going to cinemas, going to the pub, you know, the natural world. You take everything away, you've got the natural world. And suddenly there's a, quite a large number of people who are going, oh, this is rather nice, yeah. <laughs> you know, and hedgerows haven't been cut quite as vigorously as as before yeah although I, oh, I worry that garden lawns have been mowed more because people have just been at home well no it, it happened to coincide with mm -hmm. a no more may and there's been this uh, quite uh, strong campaign to to get people to not cut their lawn. i yeah. don't think we'll ever stop it get people free of their attachment to i think it lawn. was plant life yesterday released a, a report that said a typical lawn has about 400 bees visiting it during a month. Uh, if you re re mow it regularly, but if you don't mow it for that month, you may get 4,000. Right, yeah, so in yeah. terms of allowing the lower level uh, flowers to bloom to increase the amount of nectar and pollen, yeah, it will yeah. increase the number of pollinators and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I, I don't like to, to point the finger at anybody and say, oh, you've got a lot, you know. Yes, a lawn is pretty much useless. Uh, and if it's a green stripy lawn with no weeds in it, it's completely useless. That means you've used herbicides and mm -hmm. pesticides. So I, I, if we could get away from that, it'd be nice. I mean, I'd just in, encourage people to leave a little bit of their garden wild. I mean, God, it's not a, a hard ask, is it? Cost you less in time, money and effort, yeah. you know? Who knew that being lazy could reward us in so many wonderful ways? Exactly. Okay, let's go back to the very, very beginning. Where did you grow up? Where's, where was home? Well, I was born in Glasgow, uh, and I moved to Edinburgh when I was five. So I was born in 54, so I'm now 66 years old. My father moved, uh, we moved through to Edinburgh, uh, and I grew up in Edinburgh. Uh, and I went to school in Edinburgh, and I went to Edinburgh University. And from a very early age, the only interesting thing for me was the outside world, the natural world. Why? I don't know. Why? I don't know. Part of it was I had a really bad stammer. Uh, and my stammer started when I was about four. And so you're not going to do English. You're not going to do languages. Sure. These are going to be tricky, you know. Uh, and yet I could lose myself in the natural world, learn about insects and plants and animals. and. I, I think from as early as I can remember, what I thought the best thing you could possibly do with your time on Earth uh -huh. is to understand how the natural world works. Sure. And, and that's what I've been doing ever since. And I guess when you're outside on your own, you don't have to speak and so no one knows you've got you, a stammer. You don't have to speak, but I'm a strange stammerer in that I love to tell a story. I'm, uh -huh. I'm not a shy uh, stammerer. I, I, I want to talk. It's just that when I was very young, it was bloody difficult sure. uh, and it got worse and worse and worse until I was about 13 14 which is of course a very difficult time for any young lad you know mm -hmm. and it was so bad that I think I was self-imposed mute for a year wow because there was absolutely no point there was no point in talking there was no point in speaking to anybody if anybody asked me something in the street I would just run away or, or I would pretend I was dumb you know uh, very interesting, in my school report card for physics that year, I got answers well in class. <laughs> so I knew then that most school reports were utter <laughs> And they probably don't know who you are anyway. So um, I went to the Edinburgh School of Speech after that, and it was a very difficult time for me. It was, uh, what was all the rage at that time was monosyllabic speech. Okay. And um, there is, bizarrely, a technique 
where you break up all your words into individual syllables and for some reason it works for some people you don't stammer uh -huh. it's, a, it's a bit like if you sing you know no singers stammer sure. or Anybody who has stammer, even the worst stammerers, can sing. So did the monosyllabic thing work for you? What was it your... Worked, it worked partly because it gave me confidence that I knew that if I really was on a tight spot, if I really had to say something, uh -huh. I, I, I couldn't just clam up and go... <laughs> you know, I could say something. Um, but it's, it's a funny thing having a stammer, and it affects a lot of people. It's uh -huh. mainly males, which I am, it's mainly left-handed males, it's mainly, there, 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 there are various categories. I used to live with a left-handed male and he had a stammer. Yeah, there you go. So, and there you go, QED. Anyway, I, I had it all, and then they said to me at the school, if you didn't have a stammer, George, we'd be amazed. <laughs> but the, the common expectation of somebody with a stammer is that you're either stupid or deaf. So mm -hmm. I was doing a... A practice one day outside the Edinburgh school is about 14 uh, as in my school outfit I think I can't remember but I, my, my, my job that afternoon was to accost people in the street sure. accost them in the street to ask them directions or the time of day or you know something it doesn't matter what it was I had to say oh excuse me um, could you tell me blah, blah, blah. and so I was about 10 minutes into this this exercise when a police car that had been parked at the other end of the street you know suddenly cruises up and he calls me over. Hey, Sonny, come here. And I go, uh, <laughs> I goes, any figure of authority, that's it. You're, yeah. you're in stammer zone, you know. So you say, what exactly are you doing, Paul? You know, <laughs> strangulated noises coming out of me. And he, in desperation, I point at the sign, which is just behind me, and it says, Edinburgh School of Speech Therapy, you know. And he, he looks at it and he looks at me and he goes, Oh, I understand. <laughs> you are practicing. I, I wanted to shout at him, yes, but I'm not stupid. I'm not deaf. <laughs> Will you just go away? So that, that is, is, is quite a common thing. So, you're, so your childhood was sort of spent outside exploring and... And the, avoiding speaking. And avoiding <laughs> speaking. <laughs> if at all possible. Were yeah. you supported in your natural excursions? Were your parents keen for you to get out and about? What, 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 what did they oh, want I think they were very keen for me to go away yes, and find something <laughs> else to do. Go and find some yeah. insects. Go and find a fossil somewhere. There you are. <laughs> um, no, I, I was very happy. And of course, at school, biology was the subject. I mean, I, I, that's what I wanted to do. I had to do a bit of other stuff, English and history and physics and chemistry, but I just, it was just... ah. I love biology the best. I yeah. did out of all the three sciences, though, I didn't get the top mark in it. I was like, I like, I didn't like the other ones, but I could just do them. But biology, I just got sort of entranced that I didn't mm. sort of look at the, because it's all box ticking when I was at school. It was all like you got to jump through that hoop and that hoop and mm. that hoop, and I just wanted to stare at the snails and see what they were doing and why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that that's, see, that is what we've lost. That is what we've lost. I mean, I was probably the end, the the tail end of the finding out school of biology. Mm -hmm. The dissect an earthworm, the dissect a dogfish. You Do you know? remember dissecting things at school? Oh God, we dissected dogfish, mice, rats. I mean, and nowadays, I mean, ooh, we didn't do that. and even at Oxford. I mean, I was I was twenty five years on the Oxford staff, mm -hmm. you know, and I had undergrad first year students coming. So oh, we don't want to dissect anything. Why? <laughs> Because it's not nice. Look, you're a biologist. Look, <laughs> how can you possibly learn about? <laughs> I, I've seen oh. you. I've seen you dissect just the other day. I saw you dissect a harbour porpoise. Porpoise, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I assisted. The, assisted the, the expert there. She was fantastic. She, she was, was right in there. She was. Well, she's done two thousand five hundred of these things, and it was like it was like almost like a samurai. She had this incredibly sharp knife, and she just went. Oh, the long one down the body. Yeah, it was yeah. like watching a sushi chef. In one exactly. It was like a sushi chef. Yeah. Perfect, absolutely. But you've also dissected hands and feet. Oh, the and hands and prehistoric feet creatures as well. Amazing. Oh, that hands and feet one. Oh my goodness, what a program! I, I've been really fortunate in being offered some fantastic, fantastic shows to do. I mean, hands and feet was an eye opener for me. And in fact, bizarrely, the the expert that we had on the hands was incredibly urbane, a fantastic artist, a real technical genius with hands mm -hmm. and I thought the hands would completely outshine the feet episode you sure. know what can you learn about feet it's a foot you know come on don't be ridiculous you know that the, the hand will completely beat the feet hands down mm -hmm. uh -huh. and in <laughs> fact 
the food guy was a genius. He was a fantastic surgeon. He was so enthusiastic about it. And he was saying, George, George, imagine you're a fast bowler coming up to the crease and you're pounding down towards the crease and all of this energy is going through your big toe. And I'm going, yeah, oh yeah, I'm, I'm beginning to get this thing. And, and in fact, I, the only time I've felt queasy at a dissection was when he, he took the skin off the foot. So he, he cut round the sole of the foot, right round, like, right, right the way round the outside, and then pulled the skin <laughs> back. And under the skin, of course, is this incredibly specialised layer of fat cells, which mm -hmm. are like um, that air stuff you get in a, um, a parcel. It's sort of individual little okay, sure, cells sure. of fat. It's a cushioning. It, absolutely, and it's incredibly specialised. It only occurs there. And I, oh, oh, I went, oh, oh, I'm feeling a bit, I'm feeling a bit crazy now. <laughs> and I'm standing on this fat pad myself, and I'm thinking, don't think about this. No, this is not But what a program. I mean, I was thinking of all the, the shows I've done, actually. And thereby hangs a story, because I, if you had come back to me at 14, if you'd come back from now and said to me at 14, right, George, um, you've got a pretty, pretty appalling style there, boy. Uh, but uh, you're going to be a lecturer at Oxford Un University uh -huh. for 25 years. And when you finish that, you're going to do 13, 14, 15 years making documentaries on the television. for the BBC. I'd have gone... F f f f <laughs> Surely not. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. I mean, it's almost like the most unbelievable thing. Uh -huh. And I tell that story in school talks because I want the kids to understand that, that what is laid out for you is not laid out for you. Anything can happen. You just don't know. One of the things that goes through all of your documentaries, which doesn't necessarily go through other people's documentaries, is that you seem genuinely enthralled, ecstatic and invigorated by what you're talking about. Yes. Some people seem like they're reading a script. Some people just seem like they're doing another take of the same dialogue. But every documentary you do, you only really seem to say things that genuinely fascinate you. It is exciting. It is exciting. Do you it... think? But do you think it's because you've come from a position where you didn't expect anything you were sort of you were actively removing yourself from society so that now once you're in it you're being pulled into it because you are making an active choice to be there and to be in it i don't know i i certainly know that the more i learned and the more i find out the the route to becoming uh, an oxford teacher was laid out i wouldn't have said it was terribly easy for me early on but i have in me a passion a desire to share my excitement for the natural world mm -hmm. with an audience. Now at Oxford, it's an, it's an audience of perhaps four, of, a tutorial of four or of sure. one even, or a class of 30 or perhaps even 100 at most. But when you do TV, you've got an audience of millions mm -hmm. and, and you can't see them. That's actually quite hard for me because I like, I like to see the whites of their eyes, yeah. you know. Cause you can react to them, you see what they're Exactly, doing. it's much easier. But I just get lost in the... And the crews are aware of this. If they find something super interesting in a jungle path or something, they'll say, George, sit down, don't move, sit there. And they'll, they'll even put a bag over my head. They'll actually put a blindfold on me and say, just sit there and amuse yourself for 10 minutes while we... They give you a little Tonka truck. <laughs> set up, yeah. <laughs> and then in the next few minutes, they'll arrange the lights, the camera, and they'll wire me up and say, okay, George, right, walk forward. And just have a look around you, you know. So I'm just looking around. You. Oh, look at that! It's fantastic, <laughs> you know. And I see it, and I react to it. And you can't do that. I, I, I would say, even if you're the best actor in the world, once you've seen it, yeah, you can't fake it. You cannot fake that moment of discovery when you are caught up on it. You're completely absorbed in it. All I've got to do now is to convey some of that excitement down the barrel of a camera lens. Yes. Um, let's uh, go straight back again. How, how does uh, a boy with a stammer end up at uh, Edinburgh University studying zoology? Zoology, just that was it. I wanted to do it. I, I was, uh, I got my hires uh, in Form 5, which I, I did not want to do Form 6. Uh, this, it, all boys' schools can be a very cruel place, and I was Jidja George McGavin, you know, you can imagine. You know, William Golding was a teacher, not when I was yeah. there, but at my school, and based Lord yeah. of the Flies on the boys at that school. So, yeah, yeah I mean, got a pretty good if you're there. fat, if you've got glasses, if you've got some identifiable weakness, and of course, having a stammer is pretty 
bloody obvious. Yeah. So it was Jidja George, Jidja George for you know, eight years, you know, and uh, I just had enough of it. I just had enough of it. And they they equate it with weakness as well. So mm -hmm. you got somebody you're physically weak. I was a hooker in the in the bloody you know, front yeah. row. You know, you, you just, <laughs> that's yeah. where you get kicked a lot and head butted, you know. Uh, and I just had enough of it, so I, I applied to Edinburgh University for a degree in zoology or zoology. Everybody says zoology, and I'm told by a, a dear, dear friend of mine who, who taught me at Edinburgh uh -huh. and who then became a colleague at Oxford, he said, George, it's not zoology. That would have three O's it in would. it. It's zoology or zoology. Zoology. I have never thought of that in those terms. And so every time I'd, I'd say, uh, I, I'm a zoologist, <laughs> I try and say it, but I forget. The title of this episode is now going to include the word zoology with three O's in it. <laughs> well, it would have to. <laughs> but uh, that was it. And I had a, I had a, it wasn't an easy three years for various other reasons, but I loved the course. Oh, my goodness. And Aubrey Manning was one of your teachers. Aubrey Manning was the head of the department. Okay. So he, he was a ethologist and a behaviourist. They were the staff were wonderful. I loved the staff at Edinburgh. They were universally sweet, understanding, erudite, willing to share, to give. The they were what a university should be like. Uh -huh. It was like you know. Well, Manning. I mean, I came across him recently reading a book about um, a man called Dmitri Belyaev and his uh, research taming Siberian foxes, mm. and he became personal friends with Manning. And it seems like that department and that university in particular was at the time because of the cold war as well was actively not only trying to have a global view but also trying to break down the left-right politics of the time so mm. did you feel that as a student there at the no. time no mm. no i no i didn't i i have to say i was i and this is this is partly why what i feel today is, is a bit of a shock to me because when i was at edinburgh university three four year course honors course of course I just wanted to learn about animals. That's all I wanted to do. I, I didn't care a hoot about politics. I didn't, I wasn't an activist. Uh -huh. I might have got involved with, you know, save the whale or something. But, you know, I, I wanted to learn. There was so much to learn. Sure. We, yeah, you know, we had to draw skulls. We had to learn about the entire animal kingdom in four years. Yeah. It's bloody hard work. and. When every object you see is an object of fascination and wonder and you want to learn about it and draw it and understand it, you haven't got time for all this other stuff. Sure. And, 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 you know, I genuinely thought at that age, so I, I'd, I would have been 21 when I, um, when I graduated. graduated. Got one of those nice hats. I got, one, yeah, I got the old hit on the head with the John Knox's breeches, that's what they use. <laughs> In, <laughs> um, I thought that there would come a time when we would understand the natural world, when we would describe all the species on Earth. And I now know, of course, that that's never going to happen. Mm -hmm. It's never going to happen. And in fact, it's a bit of a disaster. We, there, there are so many of us. I mean, I was born when there were 2.4 billion on Earth, you know, and are now 7.7 .7 going on 7.8 billion. And you don't, have to, you don't have to be a genius to work out that with a finite pool of stuff, and a population is growing at that rate, that you're you're heading for a disaster, especially if they as aspire to the same things that that everybody has in the West. I mean, it literally is. We've reached a point like a bacterial colony on an agar plate, which starts off as a single cell mm -hmm. and grows exponentially on the agar until it gets to the end of the plate, uses up all the food, and then it dies. That's and I keep seeing that in my head. I keep seeing that exact thing in my head. And so now... And on that bombshell. We, we won't know. We just will not. No. We will never know how many species we share the Earth with. Well, the, the number of insects that are discovered and lost every year. I mean, we, it's just... Just estimates. Yeah. Just estimates. I mean, we, we know how many new uh, species are found and described, but... It, it, Many, many more go. So we, we won't ever know. I mean, I thought that was a fine aspiration. What a wonderful thing to do, to try and find out how many species we share the Earth with. Never going to know. To twist this onto a slightly more positive note... Mm. Um, oh, good. <laughs> I'm glad you're going to do that. Um, is there a particular revelation about the animal kingdom since your time in Edinburgh to now that you have 
thought is absolutely fascinating. The revelation, and uh, it really came to me at Edinburgh. Uh, in fact, it was in my second year at Edinburgh. We all went off for a field trip to the west coast of Scotland. Wonderful trip, a week. And all of my classmates were just obsessed with finding vertebrates. Mm -hmm. Badgers, owls, slow worms, eagles, whatever, it doesn't matter. They're big stuff, uh, big stuff. Uh, fur and feathers, you know? Sure. And yet at our feet were literally gazillions of ants just running around doing stuff that insects do. And I said, well, look, there's all this other stuff down here we don't know anything about. You know, it's a lot easier to work on, you know, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, why are you all, all obsessed with this? And people don't understand that vertebrate animals, animals with a backbone, only comprise less than 3% of the world total species count. 2.9% have a backbone, that includes us. So aardvarks to zebras, blue whales, bats, cats, rats, mammals, amphibians, reptiles, fish, birds, da 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 da, 2.9%. Invertebrates, on the other hand, the majority, you know, vast majority, mm -hmm. I mean insects, 75% of all species, add the spires and the crustaceans and the worms and the rest of it. I mean, the planet is an invertebrate world. Sure. And they've been around for a way longer than we have. And so they used to be big, so let's not pretend that they're... They, they were big, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, 500 million years ago, explosion of life, or relative explosion of life in the seas, they were all arthropods. Uh -huh. uh, and some of our ancestors <laughs> were those. Sure. So I, I, you know, and I get so sick and tired of TV programs who just go on about bears and wolves and foxes and meerkats and big cat diary. I mean, big cat diary, sorry if, if, if anybody on big cat diary is hearing this, but <laughs> I, I, I couldn't watch most of it. Because look, you're filming hundreds of hours of film because big cats, like domestic cats, generally don't do very much. They're pretty mm. boring. They sleep, they have sex occasionally, they feed occasionally, and the rest of the time, you know, that's it. Uh, it's really... T so they have to edit this pilot <laughs> to make a half-hour program that's even vaguely interesting. So are you suggesting that a leopard or that squirrel that's just run around over there... That, that grey, verminous squirrel... <laughs> They're, they're the stammerers of the wildlife world because <laughs> after all those reels of tape end up on the floor, they can be cut together into something with a, some kind of interesting narrative. Yeah, well, yes, I suppose. It's, oh, little, little Scruffy the squirrel, yeah. <laughs> Think it's time to seize, mate. No, I mean, insects are remarkable. So that's where the entomological stuff starts. Yeah, I, it starts pretty Is entomological early. a word? Entomological, entomological, yes, absolutely Great. a word. And that's it. If you don't understand the insects, you don't understand anything. Sure. The ecology of the world is predicated on, on insects. The savannas of Africa only exist because of insects, because of beetles who take the dung of the, the grazing herds of ungulates underground to restore the soil. Without that, you wouldn't have the grazing herds of ungulates. You know? And the rainforest is just alive with them. One of my favorite habitats on Earth. Oh, rainforests. <laughs> and they are going, going, going. Yes. The levels of Brazilian deforestation are and for what? terrifying. For what? Oh, for you know, palm oil and stuff. Palm oil in the in in some sh some cows in the old world. Love cows. Soybean ranching. Mm. We're even flying soybean to Europe to feed our cattle. It's mental. All of the stuff we've done is not per se a bad thing, if there are very few of you. It's not a problem. It's like the old days, you know when. You know, folks say, oh, yes, there must have been a golden age of man when he lived in close harmony with nature and didn't take more... Nonsense! No, humans were always the way they were, just that there were so few of them, what they did could be restored by the natural environment in a relatively short time. But now, we haven't changed, we're just a lot more of us, and we have got mechanised, and we can clear an acre of rainforest in, you know, under a day, you know. It's nuts. One of the quotes I found of you saying is that you do you think of insects as flying prawns flying and you prawns, like yeah. eating them. That's probably one of those quotes that sort of stuck with you ever since you've said it. I know. It was one of those things I wish I never said. <laughs> but no, I and mean, if you look at the evolutionary history of, of insects and the other arthropod groups, for a long time it was thought that insects are more related to the 
other terrestrial arthropod groups uh-huh. like the um, centipedes and stuff. Sure. But actually, no, they, they are essentially land uh, crabs and prawns and stuff. So they, they have moved onto land and, and have occupied that role. And folks often say, you know, well, why aren't there any insects in the sea? Well, of course, it would be very hard for insects to go back into the sea because all the it, ecology space is filled with other with things. other arthropods, yeah. which were you know. So yes, they, they are essentially the most abundant, the most diverse, the most essential animal group on Earth. We could survive very, very well without uh, lions, should I say, or tigers, or but not without the insects, dingbats, or whatever else you wanted to. Sure. But take bees away, and the place would be a completely different yeah. world. So when you went to London to do your PhD. Mm. Was that in entomology? No, yes. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes it was. Um, I went down, and this has a very strange story. Again, chance occurrence, walking along the street in Edinburgh, saw the open door of the Edinburgh Careers Advice Advisory Service popped in, and I basically sort of thought I'd ask the guy you know, if there's any openings going anywhere. And this guy was on the phone, and he said, hang on a minute, sorry, what? I'm, I'm a zoo, 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 zoologist. I, I quite like insects. Hang on a minute. Yeah, I got this really great candidate here. Yeah, <laughs> he's perfect for your PhD post. Yeah, interviews tomorrow, right? Yeah, he's on the train. Okay, he'll be on the train tonight. Yeah, thanks. What just happened there? <laughs> <laughs> Get your bag packed, son. You're going to London <laughs> to the Natural History Museum. What? So he had just arranged an interview for me. And then that's a history museum. The next afternoon, to, uh, Jake Christ got on the train. I'm, I'm imagining you like in um, Chariots of Fire when Ian Charleston comes down to race against yeah, yeah. all the other Nigel Havers and the rest yeah. of them. And he's there to Scott and he gets off the train, looks at sort of the big sort of... Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I got off the tube at Piccadilly Circus and I saw Eros and I thought, oh, it was quite small. <laughs> I, I, th- I, th- I thought it was much larger than that. Anyway, eventually it ended up at the... NHM had the interview and they gave me it they offered me it Jesus I was going holy crap they've just given me a PhD you know studentship fully uh-huh. funded sorry all you people out there who have to pay grants for stuff yeah but you know for, for three years and it was it was on something that I knew absolutely nothing about I had, right. to, I had to look it up on the way down the train entomology no, no it wasn't as bad as that it was <laughs> Myridae, which is a, a family of, of, of bugs, you know. And I, are they millipede? What are, what, are, what are they? Myridae are small plant bugs, which you find all of them. Like aphids or things? Have, well, they're, they're, they're a bit advanced from aphids. There, you Can't know. tell me. Uh, well, I've got to learn something. The, the order um, Hemiptera are the bugs, are the, the true bugs who suck either plant sap or they suck blood or various uh-huh. things, you know, through a beak. And you've got one group which are the, the, the aphids and the you know scale insects and all those little things, uh, and then you've got the the heteroptera, which are the more advanced bugs, okay. with like shield bugs and assassin bugs and things like that. And the myrids are called plant bugs. And in the UK, we have about 450, you know, species of bugs. And it was a PhD to look at the taxonomy and. <laughs> phylogeny of immature stages of British plant bugs. Fine, I'll do that. Yeah. Were they giving a fully funded PhD away because they couldn't find anyone to do it willingly and pay for the pleasure? I don't think so, no. I, I think there, there were other... Well, I don't care either way, to be honest. It was, it, it was great. And, I, and I, my, my supervisor was the great, late Sir Richard Southwood, who, who is an absolutely fantastic man, absolutely fantastic and uh, went on to be head of, of Oxford University, sure. you know, the Chancellor of, of the University. And he came to see me the first day of my, my PhD, and he said, Right, George, well, I think you'll start with the Marini, and then you'll go on to the Fellini, and the, the Derea Carines are quite an unusual little group, and then perhaps you'll go on to the Orthotolini. And I'm sitting there, he, this, this guy's talking Greek, uh-huh. or Swahili or something. And I, I go, yes, yes, absolutely, Professor, yes, yes. Yes, I, not a word, Gwen. I didn't know what you were talking about. <laughs> and I, I didn't see him again for three years <laughs> when I submitted my PhD, which is a load of rubbish. I'll say that quite honestly now. You know, Have you gone back and read it? 
Oh, I, I couldn't even, I couldn't begin to go back and read it. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, it, it should be the worst thing you ever do. If it's the best piece of work you ever do, something has gone very far wrong, you know. But, and yet, where you stand now, you've got a second edition of probably the go-to insect textbook for... Oh, well, not, I mean, it was then. Uh, the, that's now 20 years out of date. It was an attempt to do a textbook that was inexpensive, that had all the insect orders bang 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 so you could read you could learn about each of the orders and how they f how they work and i've been asked if i'll do um um a more modern yeah a second edition but i <laughs> should tell you about my my viva <laughs> oh my god i mean i've now viva under my badges i've been on the other you know so a viva for people who don't know what a viva is it's what you do alongside your written phd to prove to a panel of your peers that you know well what it's not your about. peers it's 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 normally a, an external examiner and an internal examiner and they have to prove that it that your work is original that it is your work and that it, it forms a a, a a contribution to the field mm -hmm. of some strength well of course my stammer went into bloody overdrive <laughs> and it was literally off the scale you know so I'm really nervous. I arrive at the interview room early. The external examiner, a charming man, had had a stroke about eight weeks before and had lost the power of half of his face like this. So he was speaking out of the corner of his mouth like this. And I'm going... <laughs> so he thinks I'm the internal examiner. And he, so he starts and goes, Right, now this chap McGavern, now he seems to have the right idea. I'm going, um, oh, hold on a minute, I... I I, I'm mm, mm, McGavin. I'm McGavin. Get out, he said. Get out. Get out. <laughs> so I'm now, I'm now terrified, sweating in my suit, <laughs> stammering like a dog, waiting to, to be called in. Anyway, I go in, and the internal examiner said he didn't think any information passed in any direction for <laughs> half an hour because <laughs> the external was going, now, can you tell me this about the... Uh, the of the office and I'm going and this guy was just turning his head going nope no no I'm not getting any of this so for half an hour there was no information exchange at all amazingly yet one more piece of amazing life they passed me I think probably because they couldn't bear to go through it again yeah there's nothing like a pity pass to get through oh pity pass yeah yeah Oh, poor George, yes. He'll be all right. Um, one of the words that I discovered whilst researching you over the last few weeks is hemiptera. Hemiptera, yeah, bugs. Yeah. And the interaction of insects and host plants. I mean, I was quite into bugs for a while. Uh, but when I got to Oxford, I, I, had to, I was in charge of the insect collections there, which are mm -hmm. very, very big. And Sorry, did you go straight to Oxford from London? I, I, I had five years, not far from here, actually, just up the road at Silwood Park, okay. which is owned by Imperial College. So I, I had five years there. Sure. Um, and then I got a job at Oxford. And it was, it was the dream job, the dream job. Assistant curator of entomology. Yes! This was like, there is a God. I don't believe in God, but if there is one... There was. He did definitely going... George, you'll be very happy in this position. Yes, off you go. So what were you doing? Were you, were you pinning insects on yeah, the boards? Yeah, pinning, and... sorting it. The, 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 the collections had fallen into a bit of disrepair sure. over the years, and they really had to be taken by the scruff of the neck and taken into the next century. And uh, there, there were piles of store boxes with insects in them that really weren't safe, and we, we had a huge team, and I just basically rehoused the stuff for like a year. I mean, it was like, you know. But that year gave me the most incredible exposure to all of insect life. Mm -hmm. I mean, this you know, things that have been collected 100 years ago in India, Malaysia, you know, Africa. And I'm going, wow, that's, look at that. Did you come across anything that hadn't been categorised, like that had weirdly just sort of got stuck at the bottom oh, of the yeah, box? Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, we, most museums will find there are undescribed species, new species in their holdings because no one's ever had a look at them. So, they, you know, huge collections come in and, and there's very few staff and they go, oh, yeah, just, just leave it in the corner there with the other stuff. But bug, is it? Yeah, bug, yeah, in, bug in the corner. bug pile, bug pile, yeah. <laughs> George will get pile. around to it in 20 years. Yeah. Well, or ever, you know. <laughs> uh, and so, yes, that, 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 that actually happens a lot. But then I did teaching. So I had a lovely, lovely job. I... I did teaching and curation and research, and what 
what a fantastic place to work. And and I was going to be, I would, my idea would be that I would work there until I died. Sure. I mean, I would be taking my cold hands, would be prized off my desk. I'd be putting a black zip-up bag and hauled well, out the building. As I understand it, that's what lecturers and academics at Oxford do. They just stay yeah. there until they pass on. Un, un, until they die. Yeah. And it was a very bizarre thing. I was so happy there. I, I had a wonderful, wonderful job for 25 years, but something very, very bizarre happened to me. In 2007, I had done a couple of bits of TV. Mm -hmm. I found I was enjoying it. Uh -oh. Against all the odds. You got the bug. I got the bug, absolutely. And, and you transfer your passion for teaching with a, with a student face-to-face -to, -face to this new field, which actually is not, it's not that strange. And uh, I was on the way home on my <laughs> motorbike Friday night after four hours of tutorial. So I was a bit tired. So I was on the way home, yeah, and I thought, you know, if I if I have a tutorial, I have an audience of four. If I do a cruise ship talk, I might have an audience of four hundred. If I do television, it could get four million. And I resigned. I resigned that night. I mean, I literally got home, realised that I had to change. I had to do something else. Uh -huh. This part of my life was finished, and this new part was going to open up. And I'd had enough experience that I thought it might work. I got home, had a beer, and I typed it out. Dear director, I would like to resign my post as assistant director, da, 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 da. and I sealed it up. I handed it into the director the next morning, and that was it. I mean, you became a self-employed individual. And then I became self-employed. And I actually thought, and lots of people thought, you are insane. Yeah. insane. I think you're insane still. <laughs> you've got, well, you've got a tenured yeah. Oxford University position. Are you mad? And in fact, I didn't tell my wife, and I'm ashamed about this. I am ashamed of it. I didn't tell her for about six or eight weeks. <laughs> and it, was, it was a bit like... I'm just, just off to Perrin. work. Reginald <laughs> Perrin, you know, Casey Avenue, Coleridge Close, you know. <laughs> and the reason I didn't tell her was she's a very, very sensible person, and she would have said, whoa, just a minute, buddy. Uh -huh. You know, hey, why, why don't you do both? Yeah. Now, you can do both, and there are now some people who have professorships of the public understanding of science, so it's expected. Sure. But really, deep down, universities don't like it. No. They want you to be teaching, and if you're not teaching, you should be doing something else. They might like a bit of the advertising and a bit of the puffed because you're at Oxford or wherever it is, but really... Yeah. And I thought... You either are or you aren't. Yeah, exactly. And I felt... Now, you can't serve two, two institutions. Mm -hmm. I thought, if, I'm, if this is going to work, I've got to do it. So and what I was your first big TV break? The first big TV break actually happened before I left. It was the year before. So an ex-student of mine, Tim Martin, uh, and Steve Greenwood, who had been through Oxford as well, we're now at the NHU, the Natural History Unit at the BBC, mm -hmm. and they wanted to make a conservation-minded jungle show. They wanted an exciting reality show, like, you know, in a jungle. Okay. So 35 crew in the field, six weeks, just film, film it, just fall film over, it. break your leg, eat Film it, do it, film it. Yeah, that's okay. it. And, and they said, George, are you free to go to... Um, what? Borneo? What, for six weeks? Yes, please, rather. <laughs> and th and that how much was the do first. I pay you? Oh no, you yeah, pay me. I know that. <laughs> Re wow. That's that old story when when TV began and some history don was was asked to take part in some big show and and, and uh, they said, oh yes, there, there will be a fee, sir. Oh yes, he said, how much would you like? And he, he took his <laughs> check again. <laughs> That's true, actually. I and don't it doubt a, it. It was an Oxford professor as well. Uh, so that that was it. So so that that was the first one. It was called Expedition Borneo. It was shown as five half hours uh, stripped across the week. Is that where and that picture of you hugging an orangutan comes from? No, no, that that was later. That's I a think. great photo. Oh, no. yeah. And that that worked well. And then we did Lost Land of the Jaguar. Then we did Lost Land of the Volcano. That was the one. By the third one, the, the Lost Land of Volcano, we really knew what we were doing. We mm -hmm. were because it was this was all untested, untried. This yeah. was all you know. 
But this was as remote as you can get. It was a big crew. It was in the middle of just the most deliciously awesome jungle. And uh, we just filmed the hell out of it. And, and absolutely fantastic. Fantastic. Were you all cut? Because it was you, Steve Batchel. The, the team core team was uh, me, Steve Batchel, Guy McCannon, and Justin Evans. That was the sort of you know core. And did you? I guess you were all sort of relatively fresh to that. You hadn't sort of done that stuff. We were relatively fresh when we did Expedition Borneo. But by, uh, the time. But by, by the time we did The Dark, which was episode five or <laughs> series five, yeah, we were we were sort of we were family then, eh? Family. Cooking with gas, as my friend Adam would say. Huh? Cooking with gas. Cooking with, absolutely. And it was it was exciting, and people enjoyed it. They liked it. It wasn't faked. It wasn't scripted, you know. You just you saw on screen as it happened, finding new species or odd things. It, that was it, and it was. I thought it was absolutely glorious, and it it, it would have gone on, mm-hmm. but it had to be co-funded by Discovery Channel or Nat Geo or something, and eventually. They changed the head of Nat Geo Discovery, and they thought, "Oh well, yeah, we don't, we don't want to do jungly things anymore. They're a bit the same." Oh God! And I, I know there's a big audience out there who would say, who, who keep asking, "When are you going off on the next big jungle expedition?" And I say, "Well, I'm 66 now, so they better bloody hurry up because you know it'll be octogenarian jungle." <laughs> um, obviously, COVID's come along and sort of put a dampener on a lot of things. But did you have any exciting trips lined up? Or any new shows? I, I had a tour organised, my first ever UK tour this year. Uh-huh. So I had 16 evenings arranged in places from Pershore to Portsmouth, from Warwick, Luton, you know, and all of that had to go, which is a bit of a shame because uh, I, I'm not earning a huge amount at the moment. Join the club? Yeah, well, <laughs> that's it. But having said that, having said that, and I, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn, I have been pitching a TV idea for 13 years. So almost before I, I so certainly at the time I resigned my Oxford post, I've been pitching now, an idea. Years, and that was to make a programme about shit, about excrement, about poo. It's yes. Called, yes, I, it's, just, it's just the most glorious stuff. So I, I've been trying to, I'm hosting a quiz on Sunday for the Wildlife Trusts, hmm. and I want to get a round in called Whose Scat Is That? Whose Scat Is That? A nice sort of picture round kind of thing. And like, Scat's amazing. There's, there's one bat poo that's cuboid. Yeah. Um, and I think they think it's people so it won't roll down hills because they use it to mark territories. I, I don't know if that's the case. They must just have a weird square sphincter. A weird, a weird arse, probably, yeah. Um, tell me your most favourite thing about poo. Poo, well, poo <laughs> makes the world go round. I mean, we are sitting on a big pile of earth. So sitting. Which is <laughs> sitting on a big pile of earth, which is basically earthworm poo. I mean, it was, it was, it was Darwin himself who said it could be doubted that there was any more important animal in the face of the earth than the humble earthworm. And, you know, the soil is basically earthworm poo. I mean, soil, uh, poo has changed the history of the world. It is essential. We're looking for places now out of space to live. We're, we're examining exoplanets out there mm-hmm. 17 trillion miles away and what we're actually looking for is signs of wastes from live animals like uh, oxygen carbon dioxide methane methane yeah. all these things you know so we're actually lo- looking for shit out there oh yes there's some shit out there let's go there <laughs> every time you watch a documentary or even a, even a fictional film about some kind of agricultural endeavor like there's the What's the Mars one with Matt Damon? He has to go and get his shit out of the dump out. The Martian, it's called. The Martian, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's there sort of using his own shit to grow potatoes. And yeah. I was watching uh, The Biggest Little Farm, the documentary about an agricultural endeavour in yeah. California. And first thing they do is get their pigs in there so they can shit all over their orchard to yeah. get the trees grown. It's, it's just full of everything wonderful. It is, it is the most interesting stuff. And as I say, I've been pitching this idea. It is interesting history, sociology, psychology... Uh, and I, I, I can reveal to you now the opening shot of this of this film. When we, I'm going to very very strongly push to have me on a toilet, actually dropping a brown trout, actually on camera going. So that there'll be a so lean forward in, into the camera, and I'll go splash. I'll go. Now this is one of the most important things on the planet. <laughs> Attenborough is. I'm watching. It's going to be great. It's going to be great.
Are you going to have a GoPro? <laughs> uh, in the toilet? Yeah. yeah. A poo cam. A poo cam, yeah, absolutely. No, but it's, it, is, it is just uh, amazing stuff. I, I could tell you some stories about poo that are just... Okay, well, give, me, give me one story about poo. Blow your poo. socks off. Well, uh, poo in the art world is a, is a great one. You know, oh. we're, we're, we're all familiar with the, the Damien Hursts and the, and the Brit, and the Tracy Brit and Pack the, yeah. and all these people uh, who are not real artists, uh, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but... In the 60s, that there was a, an Italian conceptual artist called Pietro Manzoni, who hated all this ridiculous hype, just like I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he thought it was all ridiculous, all this new wave art, not art. So in, in a response to uh, this, he canned, he made a hundred cans of his own shit. He actually you know, had it canned. Mm-hmm. And on the outside of the can, he put a little label saying, Merde d'artiste. Mise en boîte and a date, and he signed them and numbered them, and he put them out there thinking that this was him thumbing his nose at the art world. To his horror, they all went, oh, my God, that's that's incredible. That is like, that's so deep. That's really amazing. And they were flying off the shelf like hot cakes. Um, So he was a bit despairing until, until the glorious day because he had not sterilized the contents. Of the shit, so these cans, the pressure, the pressure is building up in these cans, and eventually, (laughs) the the inside of art storerooms is besmirched with Pietro Manzoni's poop. That's brilliant. He had the last laugh, and in fact, I was researching this for the film ages ago, and I phoned the Museum of Modern Art in New York, who I know bought one because Uh it's in the uh, the catalogue. Yeah. Exactly, and they paid some like £20,000 for it or something. And I said, oh yes, I'd l- like to um, examine uh, Pietro Manzoni's Mère d'Artiste, please. Uh, I'm sorry, sir, that's not possible, sir. Uh, wh- why? Uh, it's in storage, sir. Yes, but, but surely surely I could get it out of storage and photograph it and, uh, you know, do various things with it. No, that's not going to be possible, sir. I'm going, has it exploded? There's a pause down the line. I can't comment on that, sir. <laughs> I'm going, it's exploded, it's exploded. <laughs> <laughs> That's glorious. Oh. So, yeah, but I, I, I don't think, it's, it's only, it, it'll be an hour and a half on BBC4, so I can't get everything in it. I really wanted to. <laughs> it would be lovely to, to get the... Well, you've got one guaranteed viewer in me. <laughs> viewer number one. This interview with George was recorded back in June of 2020, but I've been saving it till now for the climax of our second season. Most of this season, as you will have heard, has been a mix of episodes recorded pre-COVID lockdown, during COVID over the internet, and a few like today's that were recorded once those restricted by the UK COVID lockdown were allowed to wander further afield, albeit perhaps a little prematurely. With that in mind, it may be useful for you to know that George was my first post-lockdown face-to-face Trees of Crowd interview, which probably explains why we were so giddy at the opportunity to be talking to another living human being. The benefit of this for you all, my wonderful listeners, is that although this is the final interview of the series, it is also an enthusiastic two-parter. So if you want to hear about life-ending volcanoes, electromagnetic spider penises, and about Tiddles the evil New Zealand cat you can come back for part two next week. So until then, thanks a million for listening. Bye-bye for now. Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh